You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's episode, which is going to be a big one, the Golden Globe and SAG nominations were announced this week, and people, including me, have got some opinions. So for those of you less in tuned with the daily goings-on of the film industry, I thought I'd go over some of the highlights. Since this is a film podcast, we're only going to be discussing the film nominations and not the TV, because if I start complaining about Emily in Paris getting nominated for anything, I'll never stop. The Golden Globe nominations were announced February 2nd, and there were some interesting choices. Well, we knew this was going to be a weird year, but the Golden Globes really went out of their way to drive that point home. Hamilton was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy, which definitely feels like double dipping, as it was a recording of a stage play, though it technically fit the requirements to be nominated, at least for the Globes. So at the very least, that's definitely a gray area. One of the most controversial nominations was the fact that American-produced film Minari is competing as a foreign-language film. Yes, the film is partially in Korean, but also English, and, and I cannot stress this enough, it is an American-produced film. The biggest snub for the Globes was probably Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, despite garnering a lot of buzz, was completely shut out of nominations. A great surprise, especially as a female filmmaker, was the inclusion of not one, not two, but three women nominated in the Best Director category. Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, and Regina King for One Night in Miami. They are the sixth, seventh, and eighth women ever nominated in this category for the Golden Globes. Least surprising was probably the make nominations. All the award shows love giving awards to movies about movies. Don't get me wrong, it's a great movie. I've seen it twice already, and Gary Oldman is my favorite actor, so pretty pleased overall with that. With many of the non-streaming studios opting to push their films to later this year, Mank, as well as Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which saw a posthumous nom for Chadwick Boseman, and The Trial of Chicago 7, led to Netflix for the first time leading the number of nominations for film. Amazon also had a nice bunch with One Night in Miami and Borat's subsequent movie film, all landing multiple nominations. SAG nominations were released this week as well and were quite a bit less controversial than the Golden Globe nominations, but not everyone can be happy. Best cast in a film is crazy diverse, with four of the five films being cast primarily led by people of color. That was the case in most of the acting categories as well. In addition, Chadwick Boseman received double posthumous snubs for The Five Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The snubs for SAG were far less controversial or surprising for SAG than Golden Globes, and I could go on and on about, you know, who got nominated and who didn't and who should win and who shouldn't, but seeing as this is already going to be my longest episode, we should probably get into this week's topic. 
Well, it's the month the greeting card companies told us we should celebrate love. And if you're like me, 2020 was a dud in that department as I'm single, live alone, and have spent almost an entire year in quarantine. Remember when we thought this would only be a thing for like six weeks? Anyway, I've decided to dedicate this month to some famous Hollywood stars who had their own troubles in the love department. This month, we're going to cover all manner of hot goss with people who are worse at being in a relationship than most of us. This week, we're covering the life and loves of a talented actress whose love life unfortunately overshadowed her professional one, Elizabeth Taylor. From child star to movie star, Elizabeth has remained an icon of Hollywood and its golden age. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. A grand national. Large dream for a little girl. Sometimes it frightens me. I see things. I see things as big as life and think they're real. Elizabeth Roseman Taylor was born February 27, 1932, at Heathwood, her family's home in the London suburb Hampstead Garden. She was the second child to American parents, her father Francis Taylor, an art dealer, and her mother Sarah Southern, a retired stage actress. The couple had moved to London three years prior to start an art gallery. Elizabeth grew up surrounded by artists and politicians, company she would prefer throughout her life. She attended a Montessori school in Highgate before fears of the impending World War brought the family back to the U.S. in 1939. The family settled in Beverly Hills, with Frances opening an art gallery in Los Angeles. Now occupants of Tinseltown, Sarah was often approached by strangers, telling her that her gorgeous young daughter should be in the pictures. Sarah was apprehensive of this at first, as their stay in Los Angeles was meant to be merely a temporary one, but as World War II ramped up and the return to London seemed unlikely anytime soon, Sarah's opinion on the matter eventually shifted. Perhaps the American film industry would provide a great way for them to assimilate back into American society. Thanks to her father's connections via his gallery, Elizabeth auditioned for Universal and MGM in early 1941, which both made offers. She signed to Universal. She would not last long there, though. Her contract was terminated after just one year. She would quickly land on her feet at MGM in a role in Lassie Come Home, which required a child actress with an English accent. Elizabeth was given a three-month trial period before eventually signing a seven-year contract with the studio in 1943. A year later, Elizabeth's role in National Velvet as a young woman who dreams of being a jockey cemented her as a child star. As we've discussed extensively on several other episodes of this podcast, the studio system of which Elizabeth was a part was incredibly controlling, especially toward its female performers. Elizabeth would later describe the studio system as a big extended factory. The young actress had to stick to a strict daily schedule, which included, in addition to filming, school, dance and singing classes, and practicing her scenes for the following day. Her salary? $750 a week. In 1947, at the age of 15, MGM decided to, yes, they decided to, give Elizabeth a more adult image and organized photo shoots and events that had her appear as a normal teenager. This included going to parties and on dates. MGM sorted it out so she would date football player Glenn Davis at 16, and at 17 she was briefly engaged to William Pauley Jr., the son of a U.S. ambassador. The gorgeous actress was even courted by Howard Hughes, 27 years her senior, whom offered her parents a six-figure dowry, I guess dowry would be the nice word to use in this case, if she would marry him. Needless to say, that didn't quite go his way. 
Elizabeth would transition from a child actress in the role of Amy March in Little Women directly into adult roles the second she turned 18 in 1950. Realizing how sheltered she had been throughout her childhood and wishing for more independence from MGM and her parents, on May 6, 1950, Elizabeth would marry her first husband, Conrad Hilton Jr., in a highly publicized ceremony. Hollywood's wedding of the year at the Beverly Hills Catholic Church as lovely British-born screen star Elizabeth Taylor arrives with her father for her marriage to Conrad Hilton Jr., crowning a romance everybody's been interested in. Her striking 1,200-pound gown of white satin with veil to match, a gift from her studio friends, simply stagger the enormous crowds at the wedding. Among the distinguished guests, Mr. and Mrs. Van Johnson with Rosalind Russell and her husband. The cameras are kept turning at full pressure. There's Ginger Rogers with her escort. And so a storybook union becomes a reality. The 23-year-old bridegroom is heir to one of America's richest men. Elizabeth, at 18, is famous for her loveliness and charm. And now they're off for the reception. As the impressive wedding cake is cut, film fans everywhere join the reception guests in wishing the newlywed good luck, long life and happiness. Conrad Hilton Jr. was the eldest son of Conrad Hilton, whom, you guessed it, founded Hilton Hotels. Conrad had a very interesting past before meeting Elizabeth, including an alleged affair with his own stepmother, who happened to be Zsa Gabor, in 1944. The two had the definition of a whirlwind romance, having met only eight months prior at L.A.'s Mocambo nightclub. Conrad was 23, Elizabeth 17. The two married in front of 600 guests with 3,000 fans waiting outside the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. You heard a snippet from one of the press reels at the break. MGM planned the release of Elizabeth's latest film, Father of the Bride, a mere 12 days after her big day, and picked up the tab for the entire affair. The marriage was a disaster almost from the jump. Whilst on a three-month European honeymoon, the two battled constantly. Conrad hated being referred to as Mr. Taylor and preferred gambling and drinking all night over spending time with his new bride. He was also allegedly quite abusive as well, both physically and emotionally. Four months after the honeymoon, in December 1950, Elizabeth moved out of their shared home. The divorce was finalized the following month on January 29, 1951. Conrad would go on to have another rendezvous with actress Sylvia Pinal before marrying once more in 1958 to an oil heiress whom he would have two children with before divorcing in 1965. Conrad died four years after that of an alcohol-related heart attack. The paper announced his death with headlines that identified him as the man, quote, once wed to Liz Taylor. Despite all of this, Elizabeth continued to work, and her next film, according to her, was the first time she was ever actually asked to act, instead of just playing a version of herself. The film was A Place in the Sun, in which Liz played a society girl named Angela Vickers, who comes between a factory worker and his pregnant wife. The film was a smashing success and was nominated for nine Oscars, winning six. Because studio system, MGM then punished her for the Hilton divorce by putting her in a B-film, a huge step down for a big star like Elizabeth. 
The divorce had also caused a litany of negative press and was a massive scandal at the time. The film was called Love is Better Than Ever, and it was a huge commercial flop. Recovered from the split and the negative press, Liz would travel to the UK to shoot the historical epic Ivanhoe, which released in 1952. It would be there that she would become reacquainted with Michael Wilding, a British actor 20 years her senior. All cameras at London Airport are focused on two people very much in love. Britain's Michael Wilding and his lovely young bride-to-be, Elizabeth Taylor. In the milling scrum, press photographers and newsreel men had quite a job to keep their cameras intact. Will the happy pair ever forget this day, as they share their happiness with a crowd that would have done credit to the cup final? And when that was all over, the battle for their car began. Elizabeth was rescued by a man in blue, but Michael had to fight his own battle. So here's wishing long life and future happiness for two stars who have indeed found real-life romance. Michael Wilding left home at the age of 17 to become a commercial artist. He would work as an extra in his early 20s, eventually catching the acting bug and beginning his stage career in 1934. He toured the world in a stage company and began working regularly in films in the late 1930s. By the 40s, he was a relatively popular film star in the UK. Elizabeth and Michael had met in 1948, while Liz was working on the film The Conspirator in England. Upon her return in 1951 to shoot Ivanhoe, the two started up a relationship. They married not long after, on February 21, 1952, in a quiet ceremony in London. While some guffawed the 20-year age gap, it was apparently one of the things that attracted Elizabeth to him. She also preferred the quietness of the relationship, which isn't surprising given the tumultuous nature of her first marriage. When the newlyweds returned to the United States, Elizabeth managed to procure from MGM a shiny new $4,700 a week contract, a home loan for the now expecting couple, and a three-year contract for her new husband. Michael had previously worked for MGM on a film called The Law of the Lady in 1951, but the film hadn't been terribly successful. The power of his new wife had secured this new contract, and seemingly emboldened by this, he denied a film MGM asked him to star in and promptly ended up suspended. Michael would do a handful of MGM films, though none of them could hold a candle to Elizabeth's. She starred in a slew of films even as her pregnancy progressed, including Rhapsody and The Elephant Walk. The couple's son, Michael Howard Wilding, was born January 6, 1953, with another son, Christopher Edward, coming two years later on February 27, 1955. Throughout this time, as Michael struggled to make an impact on the American film market, Liz's career exploded. In 1954 alone, she appeared in four films. When watching Michael perform, there's no denying that he's handsome. But despite those piercing blue eyes and strong jawline, he definitely lacks the magnanimity of other actors of the era like your Jimmy Stewart, and he certainly doesn't appear to have the acting prowess of a Marlon Brando. With Liz's star very much on the rise and Michael's becoming reduced to supporting roles, the shift in the power dynamic drove a wedge between them. It certainly didn't help that the now 23-year-old actress had finally found her confidence as an adult. 
As their marriage fell apart, Elizabeth went on location for the film Giant, during which time the gossip rags claimed that Michael was entertaining exotic dancers in their home. They separated in July of 1956 and were divorced six months later. Michael would be married twice more, but would have to severely cut back on his work as his lifelong battle with epilepsy became worse with age. Michael would die on July 8, 1979, from head injuries sustained after a fall down a flight of stairs during an epileptic seizure. Liz, Liz, what about your own career? Uh, Are you going to continue making movies or just uh, be a housewife? Well, I couldn't really um, care less about making movies, to tell you the truth. I consider it much more important to be a good woman than a great actress, or any kind of an actress. Can I get in here? I feel like Mr. Taylor, the way you introduced me here. Now look, Ed, this woman is not only a great woman, she's a great actress. I saw, uh, this is not a commercial, especially for Metro, for, yeah. you know, I would I saw Raintree County, and uh, it's going to probably be her last picture for a long time. And she is so good in it, and this is not because I'm making like a husband. Yeah. Uh, she really, it's, it's, in fact, it's vulgar she's so good. She almost overdoes it. And uh, it'll be very difficult to get her to uh, darn my socks and, you know, uh, mend my shirts and do the dishes after seeing her. She's really wonderful. Really, I have she TR just to do the dishes in. <laughs> you mean people, all people don't have TRs? <laughs> Bye. Gotta love some 1950s misogyny. Despite a less-than-savory production experience, which included a director who wanted to break Elizabeth's spirit to make her easier to direct, Liz's constant illnesses that delayed filming, and the death of James Dean mere days after he completed his scenes, forcing a broken-hearted Elizabeth Taylor to shoot the reaction shots for her scenes with Dean after his death, Giant would be a smash hit. While she would not gain an Oscar nomination as her co-stars would, the film would be just the beginning of a string of hits for her. Following Giant would be Rain Tree Country in 1957, which would earn her her first Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. Taylor would not attend the ceremony, as her third husband, Mike Todd, had died in a plane crash four days earlier. Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd were married February 2, 1957, in a ceremony in Acapulco, Mexico, which was officiated by the mayor of the city. She was already pregnant with the couple's only child, Elizabeth Liza Francis, who would be born August 6, 1957. America's sweethearts at the time, singer Eddie Fisher and actress Debbie Reynolds, served as groomsman and bridesmaid. Mike Todd was 23 years Elizabeth's senior and was already a success in his own right before the two met. Todd had produced 17 Broadway shows before moving to cinema in the 1950s. His biggest career standout would be for producing Around the World in 80 Days, which would win the Oscar for Best Picture. There isn't a singular account of how the two met, but the one thing all accounts did agree on was that it was Todd who pursued her initially, despite he being in a relationship and Elizabeth still being married to Michael Wilding at the time. Todd even had a child, a son, that was older than Elizabeth herself. Like his new wife, Todd had been married two times previously, once to a high school sweetheart whom he left for his second wife, the actress Joan Blondell. When his first wife, Bertha, died in 1946 mysteriously during a surgery after refusing to sign divorce papers, Todd was briefly arrested on suspicion of her murder, though nothing ever stuck. Todd would marry Blondell in 1947, but the marriage would only last about three years. 
Blundell could never shake the feeling that Todd may have actually had something to do with his first wife's death. She would divorce him on the grounds of mental cruelty. Whether or not Elizabeth knew this is unclear. Elizabeth and Todd's honeymoon was combined with the publicity tour for Around the World in 80 Days, allowing them to spend much of the rest of the year traveling. The two enjoyed their success openly and frequently, dropping money on art and expensive dinners and jewelry. The only thing they seemed to like to do more than spend money was fight. Liz once mentioned in an interview that, quote, Mike and I have more fun scrapping than most people have making love. On March 22, 1958, Todd boarded his airplane, the Lucky Liz, with a crew and friend Ardo Khan for New York to accept the New York Friars Club Showman of the Year. Around the World in 80 Days was the biggest film of 1957. Elizabeth was supposed to join them, but was stricken with bronchitis days earlier and Todd convinced her to stay home. The plane never made it to New York, crashing into the New Mexico mountains as a result of engine failure due to the plane being overloaded and flying too high in icy conditions. All on board were killed. Elizabeth was devastated. At 26 years old, the widow reportedly took to screaming at people on the street that she wished she had died with him. Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, whom had recently named their newborn son after Todd, stepped in to take care of her, with Debbie taking care of the kids while Eddie accompanied Elizabeth to Todd's Chicago funeral. Liz's second husband, Michael, flew in from London to help as well. Despite all of this, Elizabeth soon returned to shooting Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, determined to move on from the loss of her husband. She would later say that acting was the only time she could function in the weeks and months following Todd's death. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof would end up being a career highlight for the actress, earning her another Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. To market the film, MGM would take advantage of Elizabeth Taylor's soon-to-come-to-light affair by having her pose seductively in a negligee on the film's poster. United by the loss of Mike Todd, Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher found solace with each other's company and then in each other's arms. While Debbie didn't initially believe the rumors, eventually the truth came to light. America's sweethearts had already been having marital problems, and Eddie falling in love with Liz all but assured their divorce. Mike Todd is married to Elizabeth Taylor. He dies. You go really to help out and wind up. Well, it, it didn't happen that quickly. Uh, and it didn't happen. I, I didn't leave Debbie to marry Elizabeth. We were already going to get divorced. And you ever hear, talk to, speak to Elizabeth? <laughs> I, I have a couple of times years ago. Does not, not, that's totally not, out of your life. She was, she was the, the great love of my life. She was. Well, you honestly for admit the, that. For the three years that we were together, we, it was unbelievable. Eddie Fisher was one of the most successful singers of the 1950s, selling millions of records and hosting his own television show, as well as appearing in films. In 1958, when Eddie and Debbie announced their split, their fans were shocked and disappointed. When it was revealed that it was because Eddie had fallen in love with Elizabeth Taylor, Elizabeth's public image of Grieving Widow was instantly exchanged for that of a homewrecker. The three would openly discuss the divorce and affair in the press, with Elizabeth defending herself saying, quote, Eddie is not in love with Debbie and never has been. You can't break up a happy marriage. Debbie and Eddie's never has been. 
Decades later, in 1983, Debbie would agree, but also add, I never felt bitter about Elizabeth. A man doesn't leave a woman for another woman unless he wants to go. You know, when Mike Todd died, I sent Eddie to help Elizabeth. I don't think she ever really loved Eddie. He was an interim interest during her mourning period. Elizabeth later agreed to this sentiment as well. While Elizabeth and Debbie would eventually make up, Debbie and Eddie would remain estranged for the rest of his life. Eddie and Elizabeth were married in a Jewish ceremony in Las Vegas on May 12, 1955, mere days after finalizing his divorce from Debbie. Eddie at the time claimed that he and Elizabeth's honeymoon would last 40 years. Professionally, Elizabeth continued her hot streak, though studios were taking advantage of her new salacious image by having Elizabeth pose scantily clad on the posters. This was the case for both Suddenly Last Summer in 1959 and Butterfield 8 in 1960. This new image for Elizabeth seemed to work to her advantage as both films were commercial hits, with Suddenly Last Summer earning her a Golden Globe and Butterfield 8 giving her her first Oscar. Famously, Elizabeth hated her performance in Butterfield 8, claiming it was a pity Oscar, as, during an illness the year prior, she required a tracheotomy. In 1960, now free of her MGM contract and one of the biggest movie stars in the world, Elizabeth Taylor would sign on to star in what is likely her most iconic role, that of Cleopatra in the film of the same name. She was famously paid $1 million and 10% of the film's profits. Starring opposite her, the Mark Antony to her Cleopatra was an actor by the name of Richard Burton. I think that fighting with somebody you love and are really sure of, and if you're really sure of yourself in your love, I think having a fight, an out-and-out, outrageous, ridiculous fight, is one of the greatest exercises in marital togetherness. Especially if, uh, especially if you have no really weak points. Oh, I see. You see, you do not attack the weak points. They're perfectly obvious in Elizabeth and myself. So when I insult Elizabeth, which I frequently do, I do not attack uh, that soft spot in the underbelly. My and when she chins. attacks me, double chins. You bloody you well know. have. Yeah, she's got a slightly fat belly. I never well, use Well, I've got things. his pop marks, you know. Well, we but can the, attack the those ethics. things, but they're superficial. No, they're ethics and you're, you're more, You're more vulnerable, I'm sure, on uh, other things than that. Uh, well, yes, I am, yeah. Richard Burton had it all. Good looks, talent, a sonorous baritone, and now he found himself starring opposite the biggest movie star in the world. The actor had started on the stage before moving to film, though he would bounce back and forth between the two for the majority of his career. Burton had been starring in a Broadway production of Camelot when he met with producer Walter Wagner to replace Stephen Boyd in the role of Mark Antony in Cleopatra. The production was recently under a new director after months of fruitless shooting, and Boyd had left the film for another. Life magazine would later call the shooting of Cleopatra the most talked-about movie ever made. The film was initially shot in England, but production was shut down soon after, as Elizabeth had fallen ill. After four months of production, director Ruben Mamalian only had about 10 minutes of completed film to show for it at a staggering cost of $7 million. Mamalian was promptly fired and replaced by Elizabeth-approved Joseph L. Mankiewicz. All of the footage was scrapped and the production then moved to Rome where Burton joined the cast. 
Elizabeth and Richard fell in love fast and hard. According to his biographer, Hollis Alpert, at their first meeting on the set while posing for their publicity photographs, Burton said to her, Has anyone ever told you you're a very pretty girl? Taylor later recalled, I said to myself, Oi, Javoy, here's the great lover, the great wit, the great intellectual of Wales, and he comes out with a line like that. This meeting was later contradicted by another biographer, Melvin Bragg, who claimed that Burton couldn't stand Elizabeth at first, referring to her as Miss Tits. Bragg would claim that Richard later fell in love with her during their first scene together when he got nervous and forgot his lines. When she comforted and helped him, it was this moment that made him fall in love with her. Elizabeth was still married to Eddie and Richard to his wife of over 10 years, Sybil. Both of their spouses were on location with them, but fled when the news of the affair reached the press thanks to a paparazzi photo of Elizabeth and Richard on a yacht. The scorned spouses likely knew of the affair beforehand, as at one point Eddie Fisher called his home only for Richard to answer the phone. What are you doing in my house? He asked. What do you think I'm doing? Richard answered. I'm mm-mm, your wife. Family show kids. Eddie suffered an overdose not long after, and there were reports that Sybil had attempted to take her own life. The scandal led to Richard and Elizabeth being condemned for erotic vagrancy by the Vatican. Some people even called for Congress to bar the two from being allowed to re-enter the United States. The two were nonplussed by all of this and rented an Italian villa to hide from paparazzi and play Scrabble and I'm sure other things on their downtime from set. Cleopatra would wrap in July 1962 and end up costing the studio $31 million, the most expensive film at the time. 20th Century Fox had to shut down all other productions and sold off a chunk of the backlot to bankroll the film. Despite this, the film only received tepid reviews at the time. Critics claimed that the heavily edited four-hour film, down from six hours, cut out the heart of the picture. Despite this, Cleopatra would be the biggest film of 1963 and win three Oscars while also driving Fox into bankruptcy. The studio would later sue the happy couple, claiming that their affair damaged the box office returns, though that lawsuit never went anywhere. Thanks to Cleopatra, and let's be honest, his relationship with Elizabeth didn't hurt either, Richard Burton became one of the top box office draws for the next four years. Producers were eager to put the two, now monikered Liz and Dick, into more pictures together. They starred in The VIPs in 1963, which was written to mirror what was going on with them in the press. Elizabeth took a two-year hiatus from working and got a divorce from Eddie Fisher in Mexico on March 5, 1964, and married the recently divorced Richard 10 days later in a ceremony in Montreal. Burton adopted Elizabeth's children, Liza Todd, whom Eddie had previously adopted, as well as Maria, a German orphan whom Elizabeth had begun adopting while still married to Eddie. The two would continue to make films throughout the mid-60s that widely reflected the couple's public personas. Liz and Dick made an estimated $88 million this way, which was good as the couple was known for their jet-setting life of excess. In 1969, Richard gifted Elizabeth with what would become known as the Taylor Burton Diamond, said to be cut by Harry Winston himself. You gotta look it up. It is freaking massive. Also, they allegedly owned art by Monet, Picasso, Renoir, Pissarro, Degas, Augustus John, and Rembrandt. 
It would be their work on the film Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that would earn Elizabeth the greatest reviews of her career. The couple played Martha and George, a middle-aged couple that was experiencing marital issues. In order to play the 50-year-old character, the 32-year-old actress went under a dramatic transformation, which included gaining weight and donning a wig as well as heavy makeup to hide her youth. Taylor would receive her second Academy Award for the betrayal. Altogether, Liz and Dick made 11 films together. More famous than their films were their huge fights. Quote, Richard loses his temper with true enjoyment. It's beautiful to watch, Taylor once said. Our fights are delightful screaming matches, and Richard is rather like a small atom bomb going off. Like a Hallmark card, isn't it? Burton agreed. We live out, for the benefit of the mob, the sort of idiocies they've come to expect, he told the Daily Mirror. We will often pitch a battle purely for the exercise. I will accuse her of being ugly. She will accuse me of being a talentless son of a bitch. And this sort of frightens people. I love arguing with Elizabeth, except when she is in the nude. Over the course of their relationship, they trashed more than a few hotel rooms. By the end of the 1960s, the nearly 40-year-old actress's career was in decline. She was considered a part of the old Hollywood, and the young audience members of the era wanted something different. The public had also tired of the Liz and Dick phenomena that had now plagued them for seven years. Toward the end of their first marriage, while filming their last film together, Divorce His, Divorce Hers, a TV movie, Richard allegedly invited a bit player to his dressing room. Liz apparently jumped out from behind the sofa, brandishing a broken vodka bottle, and chased the terrified girl out of the room. Liz's pill intake, Burton's alcoholism, and an affair with an actress were the last straws that led to their divorce in June 1974. Sixteen months later, they would remarry. Liz and Dick remarried in Botswana on October 10, 1976. During their short period of divorce, Richard had sent her passionate love letters, and the bond they had formed on the Italian set of Cleopatra refused to relent. This would be the shortage of any of their marriages, lasting only ten months. Liz and Dick stayed in contact for the remainder of his days, with Elizabeth even claiming to friends that she believed one day the two would remarry for a third and final time. This was never meant to be, as the actor, whom had married twice after his last marriage to Liz, would die from a brain bleed on August 5, 1984. Three days before his death, Dick had received a love letter from Liz. Do you feel like you could, you could make the choice to totally uh, disengage yourself from the campaign? Well, uh, John is my husband. He is the uh, candidate. I'm the candidate's wife. Uh, I have a very heavy schedule, probably um, heavier than most uh, candidates' wives, uh, because I want to. Uh, I could cut back a lot. Have you? But I don't. You know, I don't choose to. Have you now, or have you ever had strong political views? Uh, if you were rather liberal-minded, I would think it would be difficult to live with John Warner. <laughs> He's not difficult to live with. <laughs> do you keep uh, your political views to yourself? Do you have strong views on, on uh, politics? Uh, or we have say? our differences. We don't uh, agree on everything. But he's the candidate. Uh, uh, we discuss things. How much of it, like any wife, sinks in, I don't know. I can remember... Elizabeth met her next husband while divorcing Richard for the second time in 1976. John Warner was a Republican politician from Virginia, most recently serving as the Secretary of the Navy under President Nixon 
from 1972 to 1974, which is how Elizabeth met him. He became a state senator for the state of Virginia in 1979, a position he would hold for 30 years. Elizabeth and John were married on December 4, 1976, in a Presbyterian ceremony in Richmond, Virginia. Despite being a lifelong Democrat, Liz campaigned hard for her husband, which led to his successful election. Elizabeth semi-retired from acting to support her husband in Washington, D.C. The life of a politician's wife was not a good fit for the wanderlust-prone Elizabeth, whom, bored and lonely, became depressed, overweight, and increasingly addicted to prescription drugs and alcohol. You can see in the video that I played a clip from at the break how miserable she is, and their body language is quite telling. All of this led to the breakup of their marriage, with the two separating in December 1981, and the divorce finalized in November 1982. John Warner is the only remaining living former spouse of Elizabeth Taylor. Let's talk about marriage a little bit. I, I've made jokes about I've had nobody likes to have a marriage that does not work, right? No, nobody no, likes that. And, and I've often made jokes about mine because I think sometimes by doing that... And mine, that, too. Yes, I have. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. But I think you do that to kind of keep the hurt away and you make jokes about it. Now, when it comes to the if marriage was a giant slalom, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bronze medal winner. <laughs> You're a gold medal winner, right? I mean, I put it that way. Uh, what makes this one seem like it's gonna work? Well, uh, I, I'm sure you were very cautious this last time. That is true. Uh, I never thought I'd get married again. I think the circumstances under which we met, you know, to go through therapy together at Betty Ford, you get to know each other really well. Right. I mean, there are no secrets. Right. And we give each other great support in our sobriety. And there is a kind of closeness that is like nothing show businessy. It's very private. Right. And very profound. Elizabeth remained unmarried for the longest period of her life, nine entire years, though during that period she was engaged twice, once to a Mexican lawyer named Victor Luna in 83 to 84, and again to a New York businessman named Dennis Stein in 1985. During this marriage hiatus, Elizabeth remained semi-retired from acting, but would appear in the odd film in addition to performing on stage. She began to tour in the play The Little Foxes in 1981, starting on Broadway for 123 shows and eight previews to mixed reviews, though Elizabeth would be nominated for a Tony for the performance. The production would later move to the West End, but the British critics tore it apart. Encouraged by the success of Little Foxes, however, Elizabeth and the play's producer founded the Elizabeth Taylor Repertory Company, which would put on one production, the comedy Private Lives, which would star Elizabeth and none other than Richard Burton. Now aged 51, the actress's hard lifestyle had seemingly caught up with her. During the run of Private Lives out of Boston, critics, in between ripping the production apart, noted that both Elizabeth and Richard were in seemingly frail health. Elizabeth entered rehab at the end of the play's run. 
Elizabeth would close out the 80s, mostly doing television work and receiving and receiving honorary commendations for her career. Elizabeth would return to rehab in 1988, where she would meet her seventh and final husband, Larry Fortensky. Larry was a mullet-topped construction worker who was 20 years her junior, quite the departure for Elizabeth, though she once claimed in a Johnny Carson interview that she liked her men the same way she always had, about 40 years old. The two were married at Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch on October 6th, 1991. Elizabeth said at the time, that's it, forever. Forever lasted five years, and they divorced in October 1996, though the two would remain in contact for the remainder of their days. Elizabeth, you have said that your career doesn't matter to you very much now, that your focus is AIDS. It really is. Mind you, I think my uh, career isn't sort of a focal point in anybody else's mind either. I don't think I could get a job if I wanted one. I use my fame now when I want to help a cause or do things for other people. Frustrated by the lack of action taken to combat the spread of HIV and AIDS, Elizabeth, starting in the 1980s, focused on HIV-AIDS activism. She would perform here and there on television throughout the 90s, but this was mostly either to bring awareness to the cause or promote her perfume line, which released in 1996. Her last theatrical film would be The Flintstones in 1994. Elizabeth retired from acting altogether in 2001 to devote her time to charity. Her last public appearance was in 2007 when she performed in Love Letters, an AIDS benefit at Paramount Studios. Altogether, Elizabeth would raise $270 million for HIV and AIDS research. As mentioned briefly throughout the episode, Elizabeth had been plagued by all manner of health issues throughout her life, starting with scoliosis, which she had from birth. She fractured her back while shooting National Velvet in 1944, a condition that was not caught until several years later and left the actress with chronic back pain. Elizabeth also almost died while shooting Cleopatra when a bout of violent pneumonia led to the actress needing to get a tracheotomy. She also struggled with drugs, alcohol, and pills, things that caught up with her later in life. Elizabeth was diagnosed with congestive heart failure in 2004. Seven years later, complications from the disease would take her life, and the actress passed away on March 23, 2011. Her funeral took place the very next day, and the actress made sure she was 15 minutes late. Elizabeth Taylor will always be one of the great stars of the classic Hollywood era, despite her personal life at times overshadowing this fact. From her film roles to her activism, the actress will always be remembered as the bombshell with the violet eyes, whom performed as fiercely as she loved. I guess it's been so long since I've thought about myself as an actress. I, along with the critics, have never taken myself very seriously. <laughs> My craft, yes, but as an actress, no. But I wasn't all that bad, was I? You've made me realize how much I really do miss it. But my life is full and good. It has taken so many diverse twists and turns, and I have grown into what I do now wholeheartedly. And I thank all the people in the industry who have helped me get to this remarkable place tonight. 
my mind goes especially to four magnificent men who, had they lived, might have stood here and received this award themselves. Monty, Rock, Jimmy, and of course, Richard. Oh, I was so lucky. I was so lucky to have known them, to have learned so much from them, to have loved them. Thank you all for making me feel so special tonight, for making me feel like an actress. And thank you, George Stevens, and all the people at AFI for making this evening possible for me. It's a memory I will have next to my heart for the rest of my life. God bless. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode as well as daily factoids at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire better equipment on the line. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we exchange one classic bombshell for another. Next week, the life and loves of one Norma Jean Baker, whom the world would know as Marilyn Monroe. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. George, who is out somewhere there in the dark, who is good to me, whom I revile, who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them, who can make me happy, and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. George and Martha. Sad, sad, sad. Sad. Whom I will not forgive for having come to rest, for having seen me and having said, yes, this will do. Who has made the hideous, the hurting, the insulting mistake of loving me. I must be punished for it. George and Martha, sad.